Last week's Coffeehouse Contemplative Podcast episode was all about Star Wars. For a franchise that consists of 11 movies, hundreds of TV episodes, tons of books, there was no way that 30 minutes was going to be able to cover it all. In fact, I could spend the rest of this podcast's existence dissecting different elements of this series. I'm probably not going to do that. But the more I thought about it over this last week, the more I wanted to at least do a part two. There is so much to cover just regarding the Jedi and the Sith and their individual approaches to the mysterious power known as the Force that I wanted to keep delving into that, to keep exploring it, to keep considering its implications for us today as we seek out our own spiritual paths. And so, let's talk about the Force for just a little while longer. Welcome to the Coffeehouse Contemplative Podcast. If you missed last week's episode, I was inspired to focus on at least one aspect of the theology of Star Wars. If you missed the reason why, it stemmed from a conversation that I had with a few colleagues around the time of May the 4th, and one of them asked me, so... What is the theology of Star Wars? And so I decided, well, that would make a fantastic podcast episode. But the more I thought about it, and I acknowledged this last week, the more I figured that one episode was just not going to be enough, not nearly enough, a a half-hour treatment of this vast franchise, no, there, there would have to be more. So here we are again. Last week's episode focused on one small aspect That being the way that the Jedi Council regulated the Force. I talked a little bit about how in the original trilogy, the Force is this untamed power. 
that seemingly ordinary people may discover within themselves and be trained on and and learn about. We we see in those original movies, Luke Skywalker first learns from Obi-Wan on the deck of the Millennium Falcon and Later on, he, he learns in the swamps with Yoda. And it extends this, this same approach, the, the same spirit of the Force being this thing that can't be tamed, extends to the later movies. Because we see a similar thing happen with the character of Rey. In The Force Awakens, she begins to have an inkling that there is something within her. And, and this inkling slowly grows over the course of that movie. And, and we see times when she's, she's able to use it. She's able to control it enough to use it to her advantage, even if she doesn't fully understand it but she does know it's there and that it's important and that it's worth paying attention to and that it's worth using, even if she doesn't completely know how yet. Both these characters, Luke and Ray, learn the Force in unorthodox and unconventional ways. They learn it in forests and swamps and on islands. They train in these strange, unconventional spaces, far away from any formalized buildings. And of course, we see that this method of training, this method of learning, this method of growing is still highly effective. They both grow into powerful and centered Jedi, in tune with what the Force can do and in tune with how to properly control it. Now, way back in the prequels, and also in some of the cartoon series, particularly the Clone Wars, students of the Force don't learn in the wilderness. They don't learn in forests or swamps or on islands. Instead, there is an entire formal system of how students become Jedi Masters. First comes the evaluation by the Jedi Council to be, to be inducted or to be included into their training. They take time to sense the Force, how the Force is with each potential candidate. 
And once accepted into training, these younglings live and learn and breathe their training 24-7. They live in this training facility. They endure trials and tests and lessons. The ways of the Force are all that they knew. It's all that they are surrounded by. And at a certain point, they graduate, in a sense, this initial system into the mentor system of Padawan and master, a more hands-on sort of training where they shadow a Jedi and learn as they go. Everything about this process and everything about this environment is clean, is sanitized, is regulated, is controlled. Everything is carefully overseen every step of the way by Jedi who have become masters, who have completed their training and now, in, a, in part, are entrusted with teaching and evaluating and overseeing others. Now, I want to especially focus on the initial evaluation aspect of this process. Because there are elements of it that always show up in other movies in certain ways. Things that center on the how and the why and the who of the people accepted into the Jedi training program that, that encompass the ones who are deemed worthy of being trained. In the very first episode, episode one, The Phantom Menace, there is a scene where the council meets nine-year-old Anakin Skywalker. And after a time of evaluation, of sensing the force within him, they say no. They deny him entry into training. For one thing, they say, oh, he's, he's already too old to be accepted. A part of the formal process that they are going to stand by. But beyond that, even, they mention that they sense fear and anger within him. Fear and anger, of course, as we are often told in Star Wars, are the sorts of destructive emotions that can lead to the dark side. They acknowledge the presence of the Force in him. The Jedi can sense that the Force is strong with him, but... They refuse to help him. 
they refuse to help steer and to shape the force within him. They are avoiding a risk. And I would say they're hiding behind the bureaucracy of their system in order to do it. They have relinquished responsibility. They have avoided the possibility that they could work with him in addressing his fear in helping him work through his anger. By this point in the movie, Anakin's already seen some stuff. He's already gone through some stuff. He's lost his mother, who has been sold into slavery. For a nine-year-old, surely there could be another path besides simply refusing. And so, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan have to take it upon themselves to train him. A few movies later, Revenge of the Sith, Episode 3, the Council still hasn't learned anything. When they again deny him the status of of master. There is this constant refrain in Star Wars that allowing too much emotion, particularly those emotions that we have deemed negative, will corrupt a person. Which, of course, for Anakin, it does. But we might ask, how much help was he ever given? How much guidance was he ever given to deal with the trauma in his life? How much guidance was he ever given to work through his feelings rather than to deny them? It is the denial, ultimately. It is the encouragement to push those emotions down that lead to Anakin's outbursts and eventually to his seeking out of something more attractive that he believes will satisfy his desires. There are healthy ways that the Jedi could teach. But instead, they elect to either say, just get rid of your fear and anger, or deny training at all. And of course, we see how that works out for them. If only the Jedi took a different more well-rounded approach to the relationship between emotions and the Force, things could have gone much better for everyone. And as could be true in a beloved science fiction franchise, so too 
could it be true for us now? The church, particularly mainline denominations, don't always seem to think too highly of the use of emotion. I do think we're getting better at this, but we still have a way to go. There are certain forms of spirituality that are met with disdain in some churches. Those forms that are more incorporating of emotion. Those that appeal to the feeling side of one's being a bit more. These practices that focus on feelings and, and what we notice within ourselves. As an example, I am well familiar with Ignatius of Loyola's spiritual exercises makes great use of one's emotions. In many of the meditations and contemplations that are included in these writings, he often encourages the one going through the, this retreat to focus, to read a Bible passage, not to try to cull the one great truth out of them, but instead to experience the story to pay attention to the surroundings, to enter into the story and notice things like sights and smells and emotions. The result being that one is able to consider these stories in a different way, to be engulfed by them, and to seek out God's presence within them. There are forms of worship that are more emotion-based, forms that aren't hymns on an organ, forms that make use of other instruments and of popular styles of music that much like the one much like the kind of thing that people may hear on the radio and it is a common critique of these forms of worship that they're just not intellectually rigorous enough These forms often have 
simpler verses, simpler words to them. And as I mentioned, make use of more popular forms of music. There, there, there doesn't have to be this incredible cultural commute from what experiences every day and the worship moment. And some, for those reasons, these just don't measure up. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say that there is an element of race and class involved in these criticisms as well, because those who voice them tend to be educated white liberals that take a tone of looking down on everyone else. We could do an entire separate podcast episode just on this point, and maybe I'll file that away for the future. But regardless, the preferred forms for those who critique these emotion-based forms is that, well, feelings need to be kept at arm's length. They need to be tamped down. They need to be removed. They need to be ignored in favor of the highly superior reason. The heart ends up being ignored at the expense of the mind. Or so, at least, we are told. That is the rationalization used for these arguments, at any rate. And I say this last point because... Such arguments deny the role that emotion already plays in one's worship or spiritual life. If you're part of a worshiping community, consider the room that is designated for your worship service. First off, what's it called? It's often called a sanctuary, is it not? A place that has especially been set aside to experience the worship and presence of God. And what do these rooms often convey, or what are they often meant to convey? It meant to convey a sense of awe and of wonder. I went to a conference years ago, and it included the, the, the place where I stayed. I, I, I stayed on, on the campus of, of a school, and this was a religion-based school that included a chapel on the grounds. 
And I'll never forget the sign that was posted outside of its chapel. It said, please enter reverently. Not please no food or drink. Not please observe quiet for the respect of others. No, it was please enter reverently. In other words, please enter in a certain emotional state. Now consider, continue to consider this room, this sanctuary. What are often included in these spaces? Well, we have pyramids. These cloths that are draped on pulpits and altars and in other spaces that that communicate something. They're often ornately decorated with symbols of the faith. There may be other decorations in the space. Things like banners hanging on the walls. Consider the windows. If you have stained glass in your sanctuary, how often have people commented on the beauty of these windows? The furniture is carefully crafted and may feature designs in the wood as well. And yes, even think about the music. The choir singing. Those moments when the organist really pulls out the stops. Maybe on Easter, a few members of the congregation who can play brass, they, they step in to help lead the congregation in Christ the Lord is risen today. And what kind of feeling does that help inspire in people? If emotion wasn't important, why do we bother to pay so much attention to these things? It turns out that the aesthetics of the worship moment end up meaning more to us than we may acknowledge when arguing over which form is better from an intellectual standpoint. To take it a step further, what have we been doing this past year online? Many churches, most churches, who have taken to Facebook Live or to Zoom or to YouTube or to other online tools, they have not only been providing traditional worship elements, but they have done their best within their means, many of them, to stylize these elements. Some still 
hold their services, broadcast their services from their sanctuaries, from those big, reverent, sacred, specially decorated rooms. There is still careful attention played to musical selection. Those musicians are still practicing. And beyond that, with with all of the extra technological things that, that people have to pay attention to, there is extra care, perhaps, that is paid to transitions, to video elements. Many churches, many worshiping communities have done their best to make this more than your pastor just logging on, talking for a while, and logging back off. If emotional engagement didn't matter, then we shouldn't have to bother with any of these things. Instead, most forms of spirituality, even those that won't fess up to it, know the importance of engaging the entire person. Not avoiding certain parts of ourselves, not denying certain needs that we have as part of our whole embodiment, rather engaging the entire self, both the intellectual and the emotional, the physical, the spiritual, the relational. When one or more of these are ignored or downplayed as important, we end up denying pieces of ourselves that God has made a part of us, that God has included as part of what makes us human. It's better to consider the type of spiritual sustenance that encompasses all aspects of what God has made. By doing so, we honor our whole selves and what we need. Thank you for listening to the Coffee House Contemplative Podcast. I'm Jeff Nelson. You can find more of my writing, including my four books, at coffeehousecontemplative.com. You can also find me on social media, facebook.com slash RevJeffNelson, and I'm BoldRoastRev on both Twitter and Instagram. Have a great week.